five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. Big satellites. Really big satellites. For the age of Starship. That's what our guest company this week is working on. K2 Space from Long Beach, California. And they just raised an $8.5 million seed round. I talked to their co-founder, Karen Kunjur, about their satellite platforms, their potential use cases, and much more. Enjoy. My name is Raphael Rodkin, and I'm an investor and advisor to space companies. Just as a reminder, this podcast is for informational purposes only, and nothing should be taken as investment advice. This podcast is sponsored by Nanoavionics, a satellite manufacturer and mission integrator. Their technologies enable many space companies worldwide to offer services that improve life right here on Earth, such as providing global connectivity, conducting Earth observation, or contributing to scientific discoveries. Check them out, and also check out my episode with the CEO and co-founder. Sadly, I am not a rocket scientist, but I am an alumnus of the International Space University. ISU offers a number of educational programs about space worldwide. Check them out at isunet.edu. And just some final things before we start the episode about ourselves. If you enjoy the podcast, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform, such as Apple or Spotify. If you want us help expand our work, you can do so and support us at www.patreon.com forward slash space business podcast. And we'll also put that link in the episode notes. And lastly, you can follow us on Twitter at podcast underscore space. Hey, space enthusiasts. Welcome back to an episode of the Space Business Podcast. Excited today to have Karen Kunjur. He is the co-founder and CEO of K2 Space. Welcome, Karen. Hey, how are you? It's good to be here. Yeah. And so why don't we start off as we usually start off with um, our space companies. Could you give us the elevator pitch on K2, please? Sure. Yeah. So... Um... K2 Space, uh, we basically believe that we're about to move from an era of mass constraint when it comes to launch vehicles to an era of mass abundance. And in an era of mass abundance, what we put in space in terms of satellites should look very different. So we're redesigning the satellite from the reaction wheel up uh, to develop what we're considering is a, a totally new category of vehicle. One that is high capability, high power, high payload mass, high payload volume, but comes in at the price point of a small satellite. And we think that this is going to be basically the foundation for the next generation of space development and exploration. And so can you give us a little bit more meat around this? So you're saying sort of like a lot of power, very large, but so what does that actually mean? <laughs> like how large is large and how much, yeah, how much power is yeah. there? So, um, <laughs> so if you look at the market today, um, there's basically two choices. There are small satellites that come in at sub five kilowatts of power. Um, you know, they're in the 500 kilogram range, probably hundred kilograms of payload capacity. There's a relatively low cost that produce quickly, right? There's a, there's a lot of Benefits. It's a relatively new phenomenon that's kind of come up over the last five or 10 years. The other option is 10 to 20 kilowatts of power. It's produced by one of the primes. It costs hundreds of millions of dollars and it takes anywhere from five to 10 years to produce each satellite. It's the exquisite satellites. This is this is something like, for example, the um, would that be something like that that Viasat 3 satellite that just is having yes. some issues in orbit? Yeah, Viasat 3 came in. It's, it's it's actually in the high end of the power side. It's 26 kilowatts of power, um, but you know, built on exactly that platform, like exquisite satellite bus platform, the Boeing 702, um, high power, uh, significant production time, significant cost, right? 
What we're gotcha. doing is building something that comes in, um, our smaller vehicle comes in, it ranges from 10 to 20 kilowatts of power. So it has as much power as those larger satellites, but our production time is going to be sub two years. The unit cost is going to be 10 to $15 million per satellite. So putting in the range of those small satellites. Um, and really what we're saying is um, it's possible to have the capabilities of that Viasat 3 satellite, but have the scale, have the price point, have the production speed of the small satellites. And that's kind of what we're building. And so, sorry, just size-wise, is it comparable to a Viasat 3? Or is it? Yeah, it's very similar. I mean, it's um, from a mass perspective, our payload mass is um, for the main version of our, what we're calling our mega class satellite is a one ton payload capacity vehicle. It clocks in a total wet mass of a little over four and a half tons. Um, there's a smaller version that we have that certain customers have asked us for that's intended to maximize multi-manifest capabilities on an F9, which comes in a bit smaller. It has like you know 300 kilograms of payload mass. It's made to be stackable with an F9. But realistically, like what you're looking at is from a size perspective, a mass perspective, a payload volume perspective, it's up there with, you know, the Boeing 702 platform, the Lockheed LM2100, kind of what's considered large today. Okay. And so part, part of the reason I was asking about it was comparable to the size of like a Viaset or something already exists. This is one of my questions was, is like, if it was very, very, very big, is like, are there even like testing facilities for this type of thing? But I yeah, guess there yeah, are by the virtue that it's comparable. So what I was just describing is what we're calling our mega class satellite, which is our first generation, right? The mega class satellite is made to be the equivalent size of the large satellites today, right? Like the Viasat 3. For that, we should have less issues with testing facilities and chambers and, and all that because they're existing vehicles that fit that size regime. Now, our next generation vehicle, which is made for like a uh, super heavy launch vehicle like Starship or New Glenn, now that is going to be the largest commercial vehicle ever created, right? We're talking about 10 to 15 tons of payload capacity, 47 meter wingspan, right? It's the largest commercial vehicle ever created. And when we get to that scale, we're going to have all sorts of challenges around testing and testing the fully integrated version. Mm. Um, I mean, it gets up to like thinking about where, you know, uh, what facilities were used for Dragon or what facilities were used for, you know, other like that scale. Um, and so far from what we've seen, and even the way we sized, uh, you know, the gig class was that we should be okay, but it'll definitely be a bit more challenging given the scale of that, that next generation vehicle. In this, in this process of, you know, going to a very different scale than anything that has, I mean, at least for the the second, the larger platform described a very different scale from anything that has existed so far. Are there any other, you know, specific challenges that you need to think about? Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a massive amount of challenge. So, so, so one of the ways we started talking about this was, Hey, like when you have mass abundance, right. Um, you can do all sorts of interesting things around trading mass for costs. Like historically, when we did satellite design, we were always looking for, um, the lightest, you know, optimizing for mass. And if it costs a lot more to get that super light component, you we were okay with it. So one of the benefits of what we're doing is we're saying, actually, let's switch that on its head, right? Like let's trade mass for cost. Let's use heavier, you know, uh, terrestrial components where possible um, to bring it together. And yes, we'll pay the mass cost. We're okay with that because next we think in the future mass is going to be cheaper, um, but the effective cost of that component is a lot lower. That kind of simplifies the challenge a bit. Like we've told people, like when we started the messaging, we were like, yeah, you just use like off the ground components and use heavier components and uh, things are great. But there is a, an insane amount of challenges associated with going to this scale and playing around with mass. So, you know, just to give you some examples, like, uh, we're redesigning a reaction wheel to handle this kind of scale. Like the trade-off between yeah. how big the wheel is and how fast you spin it is very different. There's a lot of engineering that actually goes into figuring out what the optimal design point is um, for uh, a reaction wheel of that scale. Um, when we're building like a 47 meter uh, long kind of solar arrays, right, from tip to tip, uh, there's all sorts of structural challenges associated with that. You have to manage the floppiness. You have to manage, um, you know, if you're using those heavier cells, like from a design perspective, there's all sorts of engineering that goes into 
that um, for the structure itself, like when we're using a you know higher mass aluminum structure, um, there becomes an insane amount of structural challenges that our structural engineers are dealing with, but also thermal challenges, right? Like how do you dissipate that kind of heat um, across you know that large of a surface area? And, you know, for example, like one of our one of our engineers, a thermal engineer, Stefano, he was uh, he, he he came across two weeks ago or two months ago a, a big hole <laughs> in the middle, like a big red hole in the in the thermal model because the heat could only dissipate so far, and we're trying to use passive thermal dissipation as much as possible. So yeah, there's a, there's an endless list of new challenges that come up when you operate at the scale that may have been solved at some point by uh, the primes that were operating at this scale. But because of the way we're building it, a lot of these are relatively new challenges. It's, it's not new physics, but it is new challenges that we'll need to solve. And and I suppose and I'm, by, I'm by no means an aerospace engineer, but just they're also so big. So I assume they also have. I'm looking for the right the right physics term. I, the, the more inertia, right? I, I assume this is not a thing you can like rapidly move around for like tasking. So I guess what what's what's the operational orbit you envision for these? Are those mostly geo distant satellites, or we are we are building this um, to be able to be used in different orbits? Like that's kind of the core kind of part of the core thesis here. Is there are a lot of interesting things when you can do when you have mass to play. One is you can drive down the cost of the satellite, but another is you can use mass to handle the different environments. You can kind of overspec the vehicle, say for Leo, and that same vehicle can then be used for Mio and Geo, and you're okay with it because here again the cost is mass, and we're okay paying that cost. Um, so we're building this platform to be used in Leo, Mio, and Geo. Now, to your point, uh, being able to have like really rigorous pointing for a 10 to 15 ton payload capacity Giga class satellite is going to be an insane challenge, right? Like we're going to have to. You know, we're starting with reaction wheels now. Reaction wheels won't get us there, right? Eventually, if we want to get up to like really aggressive pointing performance for something of that size, we're going to have to move over to CMGs, right? Um, which is a really, really difficult engineering challenge that we'd like to move up to eventually. Um, so yeah, like that's that's definitely going to be the case on the Giga class. On the Mega class for the smaller satellite, right? Um, which is kind of what's large today. Uh, actually, we should be we should be okay. Like the pointing requirements that we're hitting should be generally hit like what we've heard so far from like Earth observation users. Um, kind of the requirements that they need. But as you get up to the giga, it's definitely going to be a big challenge that we're going to have to figure out. And so also if you are, so if it's not only geo, if you're thinking about some of these other orbits as well, some of which are more congested, I guess you'd also have to, well, are you guys thinking also about the whole like you know space debris issue because i mean it's 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 a much bigger target as well right yes. by, by space is... debris and then if you kind of want to like if you then want to move out of the way right then the next question i'm going to ask you is sort of like okay what, what about how much propulsion do you need on this totally yeah yeah i mean this is one of the big things that we grappled with which, which was like hey we're, we're talking about building like big satellites and like are we going to be adding to the problem or are we actually going to be solving the problem right of space sustainability and we really wanted to make sure that we were helping fix it so our our core thesis is the last five years people have moved to throw out these like giant mega constellations of you know hundreds if not thousands of small satellites that don't have a lot of capabilities built into them from a space sustainability perspective and we think what's going to become optimal is actually fewer better built satellites and when i say better built it means it has the delta v like in a sufficient delta v for collision avoidance it has the delta v for station keeping it has a delta v for end of life right um when i see better built i mean like more thoughtful about demisability right um and you know with 
every kind of material choice that we're making with our vehicle, we're thinking about demisability, right? Um, and so those are those are really important for us. I mean, first that we are thinking about fewer satellites. The other thing is we're opening up different orbits, right? When you have higher power, when you have the ability to put up larger optical apertures, like you don't have to be in the same Leo orbit that everybody else needs to be, right? Uh, so from a proliferation of Leo, like what we envision is like we have certain customers that are thinking about, hey, maybe I just take it fewer satellites, put them in a slightly higher Leo orbit. I have the power and the payload volume to do that, right? And now I have actually a bit of a safer orbit, um, and I'm not contributing as much to the congestion problem that we're going to see um, from from the mega constellations. So when you guys, you know, started to think about it, sort of like the origin story of K2. So I, I, I get the whole point, sort of like you know, I think you are your, your brother and co-founder CTO was at SpaceX, so of course very directly aware of like Starship development. So I get that as a motivation, but then sort of was that was that it, or did you guys also start thinking about maybe I don't know, was there any sort of other historical equivalents on Earth? Um, and I'm just making this up. Maybe when we went from like small ships to huge container ships or something like that, is there anything else that went into your thinking that you think is worth mentioning so we understand your, your rationale? Yeah, there? yeah. So I mean, so first of all, Neil and I have been like interested in space since we were kids, right? This this started a long time ago. This journey. Um, when I was uh, 11 and he was five, we had moved into a new house. And one whole wall in one of the bedrooms had the Earthrise, like the giant like wall of the Earthrise, which is you know uh, the Earth rising over the moon. And we fought over like who could get that room. Um, I went out because of big brother privileges, and uh, he made up for it by going and working in SpaceX. But we've always been like thinking about, hey, at some point, like let's go do this, right? And actually, in 2018, when I left BCG, I uh, I wanted to join an early stage space company. I spent six months talking to every single new space company that would talk to me. I went to every conference. I built my little Excel sheet. Uh, of 200 different space startups. And the conclusion I came to is there are a lot of really cool companies doing really cool things that could be really interesting from like our future activities in space perspective, but I couldn't find that many sustainable business models. And the reason why I couldn't find that many sustainable business models was the cost side of the equation, right? Operating in space from a launch yeah. perspective, from a satellite perspective is crazy expensive, right? Um, yeah. and so just, just, just to be clear, when, yeah, when, you're, yeah. saying, when you're saying uh, sustainable now, you're talking economic sustainability, right? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. 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 From a business model perspective, right? I just saw like, I mean, very just simply, like, how are you going to make enough money to cover your cost base? Right. And I just didn't see, I didn't see that. Um, and what I saw was like your options, if you had a, like your payload developer, right? You have like an interesting payload that does some really interesting use case. Um, and maybe there is a decent sized TAM out there for that use case. Your options for satellites to get that payload in space were like a small satellite from a untested provider that maybe would get you up uh, at the amount of capital that you have. So you have five to 15 million dollars, right? You can put up one in space that has less power than you need, it has less payload volume, it has less payload mass. Or you try to find 200 to 300 million dollars and you convince one of the primes to sell you like the satellite that actually gives you what you need from a capabilities perspective. So I saw this like massive gap, right? Um, and so when we were revisiting this, we were like, okay, well, SpaceX has gone into the launch side of this equation, right? F9 hitting 100 launches per year is incredible, right? And Starship coming online over the next two to three years is going to be a game changer, right? And that kind of started us on this journey of like, maybe we are actually about to go to this mass abundant era. And if we are, like maybe we can go after the spacecraft side and actually provide a way for every single space company to get the platform that they've 
always wanted at the price point they've always needed. So there's, there's as I guess, very often there's sort of two big challenges, right? There's the, the, the tech challenge and sort of you've already described that uh, there are indeed challenges and some of them are not trivial, yeah. but on the other hand, you are very smart guys and, and working on that. But it is, I mean, wouldn't you agree there is also still a market challenge? I guess that's kind of segueing over into the market, right? Because I mean, one way this has historically been solved in terms of like um, making this or forcing this or yeah, somehow making this um, economically sustainable is that, you know, large platforms have been sold as, you know, I don't know, big spy satellites for gov- like non-price sensitive government customers, right? Or big communication satellites like Viasat 3 for, you know, one of the only subsectors of space, which actually has been making good money for decades, right? Satellite communications. So now you guys are, com- are coming in here. Where where do you see your main use cases and markets? Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's short-term and long-term, right? Long-term, we want to be the platform for all future space development, right? We want every single new space startup that's looking for power, payload mass, and payload volume at a low cost to use us, right? That's the goal and that's the vision. But I recognize that like New Space doesn't have the capital to kind of fund multiple $15 million satellites, right? Like that's just not there today. It may be there eventually, but it's going to take time. So the customer today, there's really two segments. One is on the national security side, right? Um, if you look at the national, the DOD right now, they're thinking about resilient space architecture. They need high power, mm-hmm. they need it in different orbits, and they need rapid capabilities, right? Um, they need to be able to have a distributed constellation of assets that can handle the payload requirements that they have. Um, and there's a really there's a real gap there right now, right? Like th- th- there's a version of the world where we need to rapidly scale up production and the primes are totally booked out, right? Like they're producing at scale as fast as they possibly can and their production does not meet the demand for high powered, highly capable satellites. And so we saw that big gap and we're like, yeah, that's going to be a really interesting place for us. And, you know, current feedback today is that we are actually filling that gap. The second big segment is the one that really cares about power and that we've already talked a little bit about, which is comms, right? If I'm a large telco operator, power equals throughput, right? Power directly drives the economics of my business, right? Uh, If we're saying we can now offer high power, right? 20 kilowatts of power, but offer it at a capital cost of 15 million instead of 500 million, that significantly changes first how they replenish their existing assets, but the types of architecture they can go after moving forward, right? For example, I can can start doing that Neo constellation I always wanted to do, but couldn't when the unit cost was, you know, over hundred million dollars per satellite. I can start going after higher LEO applications with fewer higher powered satellites. I can do things like proliferated geo, right? Take my geo spectrum slot and put four geo satellites there, each with 20 kilowatts of power instead of one satellite there with, you know, 20 kilowatts of power. Uh, so that's, that's really what we're finding is like, there's a lot of interest, especially as they're thinking about all the disruption that's happening in their industry, right? From the, from an average telco operator perspective, the disruption they're facing is uh, from Starlink, OneWeb, Kuiper, it's from terrestrial competitors like Fiber, and it's also from, you know, uh, thinking about um, in their own way, how to build resilient space architecture if things go south from a diplomacy perspective, right? All of those forces are making them think about how do I actually think about deploying high capability, high power in different orbits so that I'm actually able to um, not only survive the next 10 years, but thrive in the face of such competition. And so maybe if we just go into slightly more detail on that, because that's super interesting. So for example, on the SATCOM side, where do you see this fitting in with some of the, you know, I'd call them potentially emerging trends we have right now. And let's talk mm-hmm. about a couple. One is sort of like the whole, um, you know, I think what people now call D- D2D, direct to device, mm-hmm. right? Where satellite connects directly to your cell phone or your tablet or whatever. And then the other one, I guess we could talk about is sort of like in-space computing and data centers and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. So direct-to-device, right? What are the two things you need to actually have a successful direct-to-device satellite? You need a lot of power and you need a lot of payload volume. 
right? Um, the, the biggest limitation to data throughput down to direct device is the power of the signal, right? Uh, and so in a world where we didn't have, you know, mass and volume abundance, the challenge was basically coming up with a super complicated mechanism that folded into the really small payload volume, right? And then expanded out in space, right? Well, in a world where we have something like Starship, I no longer need to make it as complicated to get to the scale that I need, right? In a world where we have Starship, we can something that's high powered, like we're, we're offering, you can both simplify the payload, but also use the high power that we're delivering to kind of improve your ability to actually have direct to sell, right? And then, you know, the, if each satellite, each of these high powered satellites no longer costs you know, 200 million and instead cost 15 million. Well, now I can put um, anywhere between 50 to 75 of them in a LEO orbit and be able to actually have high speed direct to device, right? Like that's what the future could look like from a direct to device perspective. And it all comes from, you know, the mass abundance that we see from launch vehicles affecting in different ways. Um, on the in-space... Oh, go ahead. I was going to say, no, on the in-space... You can continue on the in-space. Yeah, I was going to say, on the in-space processing, like there's... I'm not sure how this industry turns out. Like, I'm, I I think there's going to be... There's absolutely going to be a need to think about what we process in-space versus what we transmit down. But there's an inverse relationship between that and our actual transmit capabilities as things like optical come online, right? And so uh, I think we're going to see, like I've seen, I've talked to a bunch of different Constellation developers that have different strategies. Some are really leaning into processing space, right? And they're like, okay, we're going to do the processing in space, and then we're going to send down only the data that we require. Some are going to the opposite spectrum. They're saying, you know, with high power and with optical comms, I actually probably don't need to process as much in space and I can just be down and do all, all processing yeah. on the ground, right? And so I, I don't have a strong thesis somewhere that's going. I think those two forces are going to go against each other. Um, I'm intrigued. I think if, if it does pick up, right, like what does edge computing mean? It, it, it means power, right? It, it really needs power and it also needs to be able to handle like thermal challenges, right? From uh, basically be able to dissipate a lot of heat. Um, and we're well suited for, for either of those. TBD, I, I'm kind of curious how, how it's going to play out. Yeah, so, so, so am I sort of wearing my head as a venture capitalist for sure. But I mean, yeah, I, I'm just asking about this because I mean, when we're talking about sort of mass abandoned world and to some extent also um, correlated a power abundant world, right? Then you know, it came to my mind, okay, what's one of the most power hungry industries on earth? It's like yeah. data centers. Yes. <laughs> and it can be for in-space computation, but it could also be, and, and some people have pitched these business models, right? Could it be yeah. for in-space data storage? Yes. as well, right, for secure storage. And the curious thing will be, you know, obviously as we as we start expanding, right, like if we start moving into cislunar space, as we start thinking about, you know, um, putting a comms relay system around Mars and having high data throughput and having a lot of data coming out of our activities on Mars, right? Like the needs there for both, you know, processing and storage will, will certainly be different. Um, so I, I think there is going to be a use case for it. I'm, I'm just curious, like at what rate it grows and how the two kind of uh, forces kind of uh, balance each other out. Hey, fellow space enthusiasts, this is just a quick 30 second reminder that I just released my introductory space economy book called To Infinity in English. It provides a non-technical introduction to the space sector, covering key trends, key space businesses, humanity's potential future in space, and how you can get involved. All of this is based on my daily experience as a space venture investor and also as university lecturer on space entrepreneurship. The book is about 250 pages long and you can get the Kindle version for about 10 bucks. You can find it on Amazon or you can download a free sample at spacebusiness.substack.com. The link is also in the episode notes. Now back to today's episode. Now, sort of still talking about the markets. So, so again, what, what sometimes, if not very often, or maybe all of the times happens when you're trying to sort of push forward both the technology and then sort of a 
the, the, the market that that technology enables, right, is that you may end up facing a time lag, right? And I, I give you some other current example from the space industry, which you also will know very well, which is um, in-space manufacturing and what companies like Vada are doing, right? And so Vada, at, at another space, X SpaceX <laughs> company, yeah. right? Vada is, um, I'm sure most of our listeners knows as well, know as well, developing a return-capable um, capsule, which can be used for in-space manufacturing. Um, so innovative technology, but then also the market issue is like, okay, you need to find customers who use this. And, and Vada has, for now, solved this basically by being vertically integrated and says, well, we're just going to you know, use the capsule ourselves and produce pharmaceuticals. Uh, how are you guys thinking about this? Is there a scenario where you guys are building these very big platforms and then like maybe people are, it's going to take a little bit longer than you think to convince them of the use cases and you're like, okay, screw it. We're just going to do this use case ourselves and just prove to everybody how good this is. Yeah, it's the curious thing is, you know, if we were just going with the GigaClass satellite, which is the really large one, this would definitely be the case. This dynamic of like, where's the market? It's a capability that no one's used to, no one's used. We're going to have to go build the market. But we're starting with the mega class, right? Which is made for F9, which is at the same class of vehicle that everybody else is already using. It has the same set of use cases. It just has a fundamentally different set of unit economics, right? Which allow you to do stuff like take that exquisite asset and build a constellation of them. That's not that's not like a hypothetical need. Like that is a that's hitting on an existing need, right? Like, you know, Viasat 3 costs what $750 million per satellite, right? Uh, the constellations envisioned by each of the other large telco operators as they think about their next set of satellites are all hundreds of millions, if not billion dollar programs. Um, that's an existing need. So for us, the challenge is we need to prove that we can actually do it. Right. But if we prove that we can do it, the market is there. So it's a slightly different uh, challenge versus the, 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 the Vardas of the world. Understood. And so in order to hit those, so a lot hinges that you know, on, on you, like you said, proving to do it and doing it at these, well, at least somewhere close to these uh, price points that you're mentioning. And I assume that you are achieving because you are redesigning the basically the, well, the satellites and then the manufacturing process from scratch. I'm assuming this also means you're probably going to be highly vertically integrated. Yeah, I'd say like the, the make first buy decision, that's kind of what Neil and the team have been running through. Uh, there's a model that started basically in March of last year on a simple Google sheet that uh, continues to change. But a, a significant portion of what we're doing is building in-house, right? And, and where we focused on, I mean, there's, there's stuff like star trackers, right? Star trackers are, uh, there's a great market for them. There's a lot of producers and it doesn't really scale, like the challenges don't really scale with mass, right? So we'll probably buy that. But there's stuff like the reaction wheel, right? There's stuff like the power systems. There's stuff like the flight computer, which are truly unique to the class of vehicle that we're building. And that there are benefits to us owning the production of it, rethinking what's optimal specifically for our class of vehicle, not needing to deal with the constrained supply chain where um, it makes total sense for us to just do in-house. Um, so we try to be pretty thoughtful about it. We're not going to fully vertically integrate everything, but I'd say like, you know, anywhere between... Uh, when we put that first satellite in space, I think anywhere between 60 to 80% of the vehicle will be built in-house. Gotcha. Are you also going to do your own propulsion or do you plan on buying the propulsion? Yeah, so we uh, we will. Uh, we just hired um, someone who uh, who's going to start next week, so I won't share his name, but he was responsible for, uh, for designing Starlink's um, EP system, electric propulsion. He then went on and um, was you know, instrumental in Apollo Fusion's EP system. 
um, which, you know, as you, as you all know, was, was sold to Astra back in 2021. Um, so we are yep. going to design our own EP system and, and, and build that in-house uh, and, and, and really kind of own that challenge because we think at least from a station keeping, from a end of life, um, having our own EP capabilities. And as also, as we think about some of the scientific missions we'd love to do down the line, having EP at the scale that we're talking about, which is basically like the largest EP system ever created, um, is going to be really, really important. Um, so yeah, to answer your question, we, we will be building our own EP system in-house. But so, okay, I haven't thought this fully through, but in terms of, I get EP in terms of station keeping and, and end of life, but again, we, we already talked a little bit about space degree in terms of like rapid avoidance maneuvers, or I also don't know, like, um, sort of like, would you, like I say, would you, would your mega class always go on a dedicated flight? And if not, if it's a ride share, then you'd also have to get to your operational orbit. The, the question being is like, is EP enough or would you not need chemical? Yeah, yeah that's a great question. So there, there are times where. I mean, the cost of EP is generally time, right? So there are certain use cases that maybe don't care as much about the time to getting to destination orbit. Um, and there are use cases that do, right? Uh, and if there are use cases that do, either we'll rely on like a direct in, direct inject, or you know, there's there's enough OTVs that are coming on online that we're pretty excited by, right? Like the team at Impulse is doing some great things. They're doing phenomenal engineering, and like we could you know partner with them um, down the line if there's a customer that really wants to get to a certain orbit rapidly, right? Um, what we see is like we'll start with our base, and we'll be able to add on the capabilities if the customer demands it. But not all customers demand that capability. Is is kind of how we're thinking about it. And I don't remember the. Um... We actually had impulse uh, on a podcast recently. <laughs> but oh, nice. I don't remember the size of their vehicle, but so is is um, uh, yeah, Barry Matsumori is yeah. is their vehicle? I guess would be capable to take your mega class, but would it be capable of taking your giga class as well? I don't think so. I think their current largest envisioned vehicle is it's actually if I remember correctly, I saw one of the we were, we were over there a few weeks ago. Somewhere between like the total mass, somewhere between the mega and the giga. Um, I'm not sure, but like they're, you know, really kind of starting out for the next two years. It's going to be all around, all around the mega. Um, and then in terms of the giga, like the interesting thing there is just like by the time that comes online, right, we're, we're probably looking at like the first giga launch being three years from now, maybe four, right, based on Starship getting up to uh, a cadence where they're putting enough Starlink payloads. That's probably going to take up two years of their time before it's commercially available to other customers. It's probably going to be three. Um, so, you know, kind of what we decided was we were like, wait and see, right? Like, let's not build capabilities without seeing kind of what is actually optimal, right? There's stuff like whether Starship figures out refueling, the timeline to that, what those refueling capabilities are like, um, that could actually change what's optimal. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, with with the rise of OTV players, with refueling coming down the horizon, um, you know, we felt like we can we can make some future design decisions around the Giga when, when the time comes. Sort of talking of thinking from a sort of ecosystem perspective, um, mm -hmm. other than OTVs, is there some something else, some other uh, capability uh, business model that you wish somebody was uh, doing that would help out what you guys are doing? Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, I think that like if from talking to, uh, you know, so I was... I was talking with someone on the national security side, and I, th I think all the issues with the logistics and the ground operations of scaling up like rapid launch cadence across the ranges, there's like an insane amount of infrastructure and just like on the ground problems we're going to have to solve, right? Like coming like all the way down to like someone was doing the calculation around like if Starship actually hits the cadence, it's going to hit like how much fuel that's going to require like going through like the launch sites, right? And like no one's really thought about that. And yeah, SpaceX might try to solve it themselves, but like there's there's stuff like that on the ground side that I think 
think no one's really thinking about. Um, and so, you know, uh, and whether it's like the, the people that are, you know, like the, the spaceport company that's thinking about like how to actually, you know, how add to the number of launch sites available, right. To solve that problem. But I think dealing with that constraint, um, is going to be really important for, for our thesis of like getting to that massive abundant future, right. SpaceX can do the rockets, but if we can't handle, if the ground like operations can't handle that cadence, like it's not going to matter. Right. Um, so that's an interesting one, um, for us, I think is, is, is just making sure that that's there so that the launch cadence is there so that we do actually have the massive abundant future that we really want to exist. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. And so in terms of timeline, okay. So obviously Giga is a few years out, as you mentioned, um, what, what's, what's your rough timeline like? So when do you hope to have a, a mega class? In, in orbit. Yeah, yeah. So, so right now we're we're building kind of the the initial prototypes, the initial iterations of a lot of the hardware that we're building in house. Right. So we just started finishing spinning our uh, uh, our first iteration of the reaction wheel two weeks ago. Right. Um, we're going to do three iterations over the next twelve months of the different components, and we're going to do a demo mission that's a fully like K two space demo mission next year. Um, basically, a hosted payload, take a bunch of the components. Obviously, the reaction wheel is going to take up most of the mass, get them in space, um, and 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 have a, a way to really like um, get hair on the components, but also learn a little bit and have the team get like some just space mission ops experience. And then from there, we're going to scale up to the mega class. Um, we're aiming for a 2025 mission and an F9 um, or F9 equivalent if one of them comes online really quickly, but likely it'll be an F9 given the time frame. Um, and that's going to be our first launch of the mega class. Uh, we're talking to a number of customers who are interested in being the first. Um, obviously, there's a bit of like first mover advantage here for the customer that like uses this demo mission as a way to figure out if for their payload side, like, can they actually do this in a way that allows them to have that constellation they've always wanted of high powered satellites and in different orbits. And so there's a few customers we're talking to um, who could be like an interesting fit, let alone, you know, be really interesting to potentially take a. Uh, take a few national security payloads up there as well with that first mission. So a lot of that's still in the works. Like we're, we're talking through, you know, a bunch of different options, but the goal is a full mega class launch in 2025. Um, and then eventually moving on to the giga class after that as, as, as Starship and, and New Glenn come online. And, and it's interesting, you, you just mentioned that as part of your timeline that you will test some of your components hosting on other people's platforms. But of course, that also brings up the question, once you guys have these very big platforms, theoretically, you could become a hosting provider, which is obviously the way some satellite companies have chosen um, to go, right? Like Endurosat and Inspire and so forth. Is that also something that's a possibility for K2? Definitely a possibility, right? Because if we have all the power that we have with all the payload volume and the payload mass, like it, it would be, you know, we, we have to figure out the interface and there's a lot of you know stuff there that we need to figure out, but like it's a, it's, we're well suited and well positioned to take advantage of that. My big question is one, I don't want to lose focus, right? Our focus is to deploy constellations of these satellites. That's where the economics get really interesting. Um, and on the economics point too, like what is the value per customer for these hosted payloads versus the cost per customer? Um, I generally like, I haven't seen anyone show me the numbers and be like, Hey, this is, this is a really good business model. And it, it probably exists. I just, I haven't seen it myself where I'm like, okay, these individual customers, like splitting out my satellite across 15 different customers and the complexity that comes with 15 different customers is worth it because each customer is paying X. Um, and I haven't seen that. Um, if, if I see that, like, yeah, I, I think it'd be really interesting if we could find a way to do it with, you know, really solid unit economics. I think we're, we're well positioned for it. My, my question is like, you know, uh, do the unit economics actually make that make sense? Yeah, that's fair. And so beyond that, those next, few years i mean where do you and your brother for the sake where do you guys want to see the company and i mean whatever the right time frame is so i guess the right time frame would be something where 
both mega and giga are flying established. So maybe it's like 15 years out. I know that's a long time, but you get the question sort of like, what's basically what's, what's the vision there? Ideally, what should K2 be in the end? Yeah. 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 So, so when Neil and I started this, we're like, this is going to be really hard and it's going to take some time, right? Like this is going to be a long-term kind of business. And are we okay with that? And, and we're definitely more okay with that. Cause I'm like working on this with my brother, right? Like this is probably the coolest situation I will have to work on something in my life. Right. I'm working with one of my favorite people in the world on a really interesting, hard problem that if we solve it is impactful. So if it takes a bit longer, that's okay. Like we're thinking on the 10 to 15 year time horizon, right? Um, so what does that look like? Like, you know, first, uh, we want to be the platform for every new space company, right? To operate at the scale they've always wanted to, right? So as they think about their payload and where they're going, like we want to be the bus that powers that, right? Um, the second is, uh, you know, on the, on the national security side, we want to help make sure that we're developing and deploying resilient space architecture as we expand across orbits, across this lunar space and to Mars, right? Like that, I think is really important, making sure that we are staying ahead and we're continuing to like have differentiated capabilities. Um, and then the last thing is like, the reason actually why Neil and I started this, um, have you heard of the, the decadal study? And that's like the, the planetary science astrophysics decadals. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, so, yeah. Mm-hmm. so basically like the, the decadal is like the, uh, summation of the scientific community's priorities for the next 10 years from a mission perspective. Um, and we were, we were just like starting out on this path. We were looking at the planetary science of decadal and they say like, you know, there's 30 prioritized missions for the next 10 years. Out of those 30, they really prioritize 10 of them and do like full mission concept studies. And then out of those 10, they say, if NASA funding is maintained at level, we'll do one, maybe two of these missions. Um, so one of our company goals that every employee that joins us knows this is to take one of those missions that wouldn't have happened until the next decade and make it happen in this decade. And if we do that, that's like our one key metric of success. If we make one of those missions happen, hey, we did a great job and we actually did something impactful. And if we get like to our stretch goal, which is like doing stuff like building a planetary probe program and doing a, a telescope program, that'll just be great on top, right? Like that'd be fantastic. But but really we want to start with that one and make that happen this decade. And understood. And is there, I guess the decade life, I forget, no, it came out like a year or two or so ago, right? The last one is... Do you already know which of these missions it might be, or is it too early to tell? Too early to tell. Yeah, I think it's going to come down to a few different things. But um, yeah, I mean, the planetary sciences one came out in March of last year. The astrophysics came out, I think, in the fall of the previous year. It'll likely be planetary sciences just because astrophysics is really, 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 really hard. And there's a lot of additional challenges that layer on top. Planetary science is also hard from an environment's perspective, but astrophysics has its own set of complexity. Um, so it'll likely be a planetary science one and, you know, TBD. We'll, we'll see how the next few years evolve, which, which one we end up going with. And so while we're talking about vision and, um, you know, and having a crystal ball, I'm, I'm going to make it even more difficult for you. So beyond, <laughs> beyond K2, right? Because I mean, obviously in thinking about K, K2 strategy and where K2 fits in, you're kind of by definition thinking about sort of like the space ecosystem at large, right? And again, sort of thinking out in this like medium to longer term timeframes, is there any sort of interesting thoughts you have where things might go? And I'm just going to throw out sort of like some stuff that people sometimes think about. Just sort of like one question is at what point maybe go towards more, let's call it sustainable on orbit platforms in the sense that they become more like, um, like, um, you know, like cellular towers that you just kind of with robotics keep swapping out stuff, or is that just nonsense that will never happen? Or like at what point in time maybe start? 
manufacturing like entire satellites in orbit, you know, questions like that. I mean, it doesn't have to be those two, but sort of like any interesting sort of thoughts you may have about the future. Yeah. I mean, that, that, that is the future that we envision, right? Like if we have all the power and the payload volume and the payload mass, we can do those use cases, right? Like if there are people that are figuring out how to solve, um, you know, one of the things we'd love to do is take like a terrestrial robotic arm and put it, you know, something that's so big that people would have thought it's ridiculous. There's no way we could put it in space and just put it on one of our buses someday, right? Like that's the kind of stuff where you're like, okay, let's make this like super simple and let's have, you know, effectively an unlimited mass budget compared to like historic satellites. And what can we do when it comes to in-space assembly, right? Like what can we do when it comes to like having basically like a hub, right? Where you can have a bunch of smaller satellites that sit on it or a bunch of payloads that are pulled on and pull off. I think all of those become possible, right? The giga class is actually really well suited. Um, you know, we've talked with a number of people about being like an orbital cargo depot, right? You have different payloads that sit on there. You maybe have cargo that you want sitting in orbit. Um, you have all the power and the payload mass and the payload volume to kind of do whatever you want. So I think all of those, what we consider kind of like sci-fi use cases become a lot more feasible when you have the mass to play around with. So that's definitely in the path. Like I, either we will partner with people that are trying to solve that problem and want to build it on top of our bus. Um, you know, or if nobody does, like, we'll try to figure out how to do it. Um, but we'd love to partner like this. This is the kind of thing where it's like, we want to be the platform. And if there are people that can figure out applications that sit on top of that platform, we'd love to work with them. Gotcha. Okay. Let me, as we're kind of coming towards the close here, let me ask you like a few final questions. Um, some of them we always ask, but what I wanted to ask you is that it's because of your own history, you kind of, you know, you were a consultant and then, and then because of the, you know, the love and fascination you have for space, you decided to kind of join the space industry. And I think there's quite a few people out there at the moment who sort of in similar situations, they're not, you know, they're not trained aerostro people from MIT or something, but they still would like to join the space, um, the space sector, any, I don't know. And most of them, unfortunately, won't have a brother who's at SpaceX, but any sort of general advice you have for people like that who are looking to join our sector from non-technical backgrounds? Yeah. So first of all, I got really lucky with my brother, right? So the the, the position that I'm in is is super fortunate and I, I'm really appreciative of that. But I would say like, so so in 2018, I didn't, I didn't kind of finish that story. Like I, I spent those six months, I came to the conclusion that there was no business model that I really could get excited by. And I decided that then wasn't the time. And I went and helped build an artificial intelligence company that we sold in 2021 and came back to this at the beginning of 2022. So the first thing I would say is like, don't force it, right? Like pay attention. And like, if you do make your bet, like make a really big bet that you're excited by and, you know, don't force it because you just want to get into space. Like this has been a long-term process for me where I've kept my eye on this and waited for the right opportunity and jumped. Um, and then the second is like, there are a tremendous number of really interesting, talented engineers that are building really cool technology but I think there's a gap um, for with people that can understand like, hey, could this actually be a business model that I could go raise capital on long term, right? Like it's one thing to raise a seed round and a pre-seed round, but, it, you know, Series A investor asks certain questions, which we're going to have to answer uh, relatively soon. Series B asks other questions. Series C asks others and the markets, public markets eventually are going to ask other questions. And like thinking about that journey is something that, you know, non-engineers actually could have a good amount to add there. Um, so there's a lot you can add. Um, and, and I think thinking about that and thinking about how to take really interesting engineering and build a solid business model around it is where you should start. Cool. And so related to that, if if you weren't doing K2, but again, sort of giving your general knowledge about what's going on in space, are there any other specific um, you know, space business models activities you find are very interesting at the moment? Oh, it's so tough. Um there's, there's a lot of interesting companies doing really interesting engineering. I think, um, 
I'm curious how the OTV market's going to play out. I think what Impulse is doing is really cool. I also think what Farda is doing is really interesting with the re-entry. And I think there's going to be something like uh, pretty cool to see with what what they bring on, the capabilities they bring online. Um, there's a bunch of like other types of businesses around like components that I think are all interesting, but I question like how big the TAM will be at scale, right? Um, some of them are like, I think will be really interesting parts of larger businesses, right? There's all sorts of players that are thinking about how to do propulsion differently, think about how to do solar differently. Um, and I find like there's some really interesting engineering happening there that I, I get pretty excited by and you, you think about what they're working on. Um, and so, yeah, I think that that those would be the big things. I mean, the big question for me is I, I, what I get excited by is, is people, obviously I'm a little biased, but people that are like, I, I'm not thinking about what the world looks like today, but I'm kind of predicting what the world looks like, like five to 10 years from now. And I'm building like a really interested like business model off of what that world looks like. And I have a clear, a clear path to getting there. Like me and I joke, we're like, our business is basically practical steps to a sci-fi future, right? But like, what are those practical steps to get there? We, we have a sense for what the five to 10 year looks like. We have a pretty clear idea of how we get there. Um, and so I, I, you know, want to keep an eye out for, for, for space businesses that are thinking about it that way. Yeah. No, I, I, I like that practical steps to a sci-fi future. I also like it because you gave me the perfect segue to what is always our last question, which you probably know, which is about sci-fi and your favorite <laughs> sci-fi and examples of that. And it can be anything. It can be movies, yeah, yeah. TV so I've got the, I've got like the, 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 the mainstream ones and the, the lesser known ones. So my favorites are like, I mean, three body problem is amazing. The foundation series is incredible. Yeah. Um, the books that is. And, uh, so, so those, I would say everybody who likes sci-fi should read at some point as like the foundation. Um, and then there's some like lesser known ones. Um, I read, uh, diaspora, uh, two, three months ago. It's a really interesting book that, um, first talks about where, uh, different paths humanity can take um, as they make choices around, you know, there's a group, a segment that leans into metaverse. There's another that leans into just going fully off technology, staying on the surface of the earth. And there's another that goes, you know, adopts all forms of technology and then they're forced to leave. And um, it goes down this path of uh, multiple dimensions and just gets kind of crazy. So I, I would say that's great. And then like an old school great is like, you know, lab and Solaris. It's also fantastic. Um, you can't, can't really yeah. go wrong with that. Right. It's just a classic. So, um, yeah, those, those, those are my favorites. Uh, there's, there's, it's, it's a great time to be a sci-fi like enjoyer. Cause it just feels like there's just like an unlimited amount of, you know, incredible options that are out there. Yeah. And if, if there's anything we have learned from things like star Wars, I mean, facetious now, but it's like that if you look at like a Imperial, um, cruiser, we, we have to go big. We have yes. to go towards the big platforms. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I mean, like at some point, like I want to call some, you know, call one of our uh, satellites something out of like Battlestar Galactica, right? Like just a big, there you, big, you know, Perfect. satellite. <laughs> on that note, Karen, thanks so much for coming on. Uh, best of luck at uh, all you guys are building at K2. And yeah, very excited to see like all the interesting current and, and also future use cases people will come up with. Thank you. Thanks. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Well, that's it for another nominal episode of the Space Business Podcast. If you like this podcast, please consider giving it a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform, such as iTunes. You can follow us on Twitter at podcast underscore space. Also consider supporting us at www.patreon.com forward slash space business podcast. If the podcast got you interested in learning more about the business opportunities in the space economy, Check out my new online course on space entrepreneurship on udemy.com. The link is in the episode description. Lastly, 
if you have any feedback, including ideas for guests, and that may include yourself if you have an exciting space story to tell, or interested in being a sponsor, drop us an email at spacebusinesspodcast at gmail.com. I look forward to seeing you for the next episode.